This new America NYC event took place on November 9th, 2016, and is titled Democracy Restored, and features K. Sabil Rahman, author Democracy Against Domination, Dorian Warren, contributor MSNBC, Keisha Gaskins, director Democracy Practice Program, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and Daniel Altschuler, managing director, Make the Road Action. Uh, good evening, everyone. First of all, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that for many of us uh, here in the room, this is a, has been a day and an evening of, of mourning, frankly. Uh, I work at an immigrant rights organization, and uh, we've spent the last 24 hours really processing this for folks. And, you know, as, as hard as it's been for me as a privileged white guy, um, I can tell you that speaking with folks who of various immigration statuses, folks who've been the butt of uh, a tremendous amount of anti-immigrant vitriol, among other types of vitriol, in the last 18 months. Um, this is a, a tremendously scary and, and difficult time. And um, so I just wanted to, to note that. Um, we do want to make this as we want to have a couple of opening remarks and, and a conversation here among the panelists. And then we do want to get to also how folks are feeling in the room and, and questions um, from you uh, related to, to what this moment is, um, what some key ideas that Sabil has, is raising in, in his work, not just in this book, but in other uh, fora as well, and how they may guide us as we move forward. Um, so with that, just a brief introduction of our esteemed and amazing panelists. Um, Sabil Rahman is the Assistant Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. He is a fellow at New America and the Roosevelt Institute, and he is the author, again, of this Really excellent read, Democracy Against Domination, which I highly recommend. Um, Dorian Warren is a contributor at MSNBC, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and the board chair of the Center for Community Change. And we're excited also to have Keisha Gaskins-Nathan, who's the director of the Democratic Practice Program at the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and former senior counsel on my paper uh, at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we thought we could open up um, with you, Sabil, and you know, many of us are trying to make sense of what happened last night. Um, it's a pretty challenging and historic moment for many of us for all the wrong reasons. And um, we're asking some questions about the values of democracy, equality, inclusion. These are things that come up in your book and in the work that you've put forth. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about the current moment uh, and the prospects for the next four years. Yeah, great. Well, thanks a lot, Danielle, and thanks, Keisha and Dorian, uh, for being here, and Tyler and Margaret and Civic Hall for putting this on, and all of you for for coming out. Um, you know, I do think that we're all sort of in the process of uh, making sense in real time of you know how our political reality has changed so dramatically uh, in the last twenty four hours. Um, but I want to maybe to uh, add to the discussion or start the discussion, take a step back. Uh, historically and, and, and zoom out a little bit. So um, this isn't the first time uh, where we face this particular kind of convergence of uh, economic upheaval, you know, deep uh, pervasive sense of inequality, uh, rampant uh, private power, uh, worries about the economy and the, the nature of opportunity on the one hand, and, and a deep distrust or, or disaffection uh, towards our political institutions as being corrupt, ineffectual, some, you know, not up to the task uh, of addressing our concerns. Um, if you think 100 years ago in the face of uh, the Industrial Revolution, 
similar kinds of uh, uh, upheaval and concern uh, gave rise to a moment of flux uh, that produced a bunch of different kinds of, uh, of political movements, including uh, populist movement, progressive movement. Uh, this is the early days uh, where the labor movement was really gaining uh, strength. And so I, I mentioned that to, to say that there are, as my first point, there are moments where things really feel up for grabs. And I think we're living in one of those moments. And those moments don't come about very often. And I think we're sort of the debates we're having now will really set the foundations of what our economy, what our democracy, what our society looks like for many decades to come. Uh, so how should we think about all of this? Well, one of the things, uh, main arguments I try to make in the book is that there is a tradition of what I think of as progressive populism. Uh, and it, the content of that is really the title of the book in a nutshell, Democracy Against Domination. I think uh, at its heart, progressive populism of the kind we saw uh, uh, in figures like Louis Brandeis, um, who's a, a, a lawyer, Supreme Court justice, uh, a movement leader um, in the early 20th century. I think for, for people then, the, the focus was two things. First, this, the, this idea of domination, that the problem of the modern economy isn't really just about growth and it's not about efficiency, it's about the distribution of power. And the distribution of power over the economy shapes the scope of economic freedom. It shapes uh, what we, each of us, are able to achieve, uh, what opportunities we have, um, and, and sort of what our economic lifeblood is. And the way we counteract that form of power is through democracy, through collective action, through the idea of popular sovereignty, right? That uh, we collectively can make our own economic and political futures. Uh, and I think a lot of what we're seeing on left and right is, in a, in a sense, um, a response to, to this idea that we don't have control. We don't have control over these economic forces. We don't have control over our own government. And so that's deeply, um, that's a source of deep anxiety. Um, so I talk about this tradition of uh, progressivism in, in the book. And, uh, and the last thing I'll say sort of as a kind of opening remarks anyway is, um, I think it contrasts sharply with a lot of how mainstream liberalism uh, has evolved over the last few decades. Um, and I, I wanna uh, call that out a little bit. So um, I think tr mainstream liberalism, uh, say over the last maybe 30 odd years, uh, has not really uh, focused on this idea of power or this idea of democracy. I'd say it's actually really uh, been focused on a much thinner notion of what government is for and what a good economy looks like. The focus is more on um, closing market failures, optimizing uh, a market society with occasional judicious sort of top-down technocratic regulation. And so think about the financial crisis. This is a moment which was in, in many ways presaged uh, some of the debates we're having now eight years ago. Um, and the mainstream response to this was, you know, from a very progressive administration uh, in the Obama administration was basically, you know, let's give more power to the Fed and have smart people at the Fed solve our problems for us. Problem with that is that it doesn't really speak to these underlying concerns of economic power or this deeper question of democracy. Uh, and one, one, one last thing that I should say, um, and then I want to uh, pass it on. Um, part of, I think, what we're seeing with, with Trump and with this sort of uh, kind of terrifying uh, resurgence of uh, what I think of as, a, as an exclusionary populism, a populism that uh, talks about uh, the economy talks about uh, popular sovereignty, but framed in a way that it's only for a specific subset of the people. 
the people who count in this uh, mode of populism is uh, mainly white men um, uh, and not anybody else. Uh, that is a, in some ways, a response to these same concerns about power, about uh, uh, democratic uh, disaffection. Um, and I think the task for progressives is to figure out, you know, what is a progressive populism that is up to the challenge of the moment that can respond to, displace, counteract uh, the reactionary, exclusionary populism that we see sort of uh, so uh, um, ascendant today. Thanks, Gabriel. Um, I want to turn it over to you, Dorian. Uh, thoughts about where we are and this idea of a progressive populism. So, uh, thank you. <clears throat> hey, everybody. It's, um, I couldn't imagine actually a better place to be on this day than here in um, our group therapy session. <laughs> it's been an emotional roller coaster for me because, as um, you see, I put my Cubs hat there on the table. I'm a Chicagoan and I wear it on my sleeve. And so I went from one week winning the World Series to today. <laughs> right? So it's been an emotional roller coaster. I want to thank Sabil in particular on a day like this for the work. You know, the thing about books is you don't see all the years of work that went into them when you start reading the words on the page. And I imagine that what was once a dissertation and is now an amazing book manuscript, um, not book, a published book, took over 10 years of thinking and rigorous work, intellectual work. So I want to first thank Sabil for the long haul to produce this book it's, it's that we should haul. all read. And just to, so we acknowledge that. And especially on a day like today, the book is actually... There's so much to say about it. So I just want to say a word about the book. Um, it's visionary in a sense. It takes us to, it grounds itself in normative political theory, asking questions about what is democracy, what is freedom and unfreedom, um, which is domination, right? Domination is essentially unfreedom. Um, and then what is justice and what is a progressive vision look like for the 21st century? It gives you some history of late 19th and early 20th century progressivism, and then it then gives us a vision for what a 21st century progressivism can really look like in the thickest ways. And so I just want to also acknowledge, um, and especially on this point of inclusionary populism, so that we don't repeat the mistakes of exclusionary populism from the late 19th, early 20th century. So it's a very visionary document. For those of you that haven't bought the book, I hope that whets your appetite a little bit. On Daniel's comments, um, I, I work with a group called the Center for Community Change, and like Make the Road, um, we've been heavily involved in the immigration fight the last decade, and so it's a particularly hard day for us that um, work with immigrant families and communities, and especially thinking about children um, who are asking lots of questions today of what yesterday's results mean for them and their families, and we're frankly we had to sober up really quickly and strategize, I know you did, Daniel, about what is our defense strategy, whether it's deportations, martial law, whatever is on its way, how do we protect the harm that is surely coming to too many vulnerable populations in this country? Um, so it's been, a, you know, it's been a hard day to mourn, but we also have to mourn and then resist and then organize. <laughs> Um, and I also say this as a black American, um, 
and 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 talking to my mother as a black woman in this country and how she feels. So I, I know we all we're going to get into this. Um, the one reflection I'd have about the election is that, um, and Sibyl hinted at this. What's how does the saying go? History doesn't repeat, but it sometimes rhymes. So we've actually seen this before, and Sibyl mentioned this, and and. I've been grappling with metaphors or historical examples all day. The one that comes to mind, someone said to me last night, this is the end of the Obama era is sort of like the end of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow. And so it made me think of what was the response to Reconstruction, right? It was Southern redemption, Southern redemption. Um, and Southern redemption, you know, there was the Compromise of 1877 um, involving this thing called the Electoral College, Right, that was um, created to protect the institution of slavery. Um, and as we now know, Secretary Clinton won the popular vote, but lost the Electoral College. So if there's any doubt about the historical legacy of the founding racial and economic institution of slavery on our lives today, it is that. It is that. So um, I was thinking about Southern Redemption. Van Jones, last night on CNN, in this very emotional moment that has gone viral, called it um, White Lash. I kind of think of it as this is sort of 21st century redemption of the gains we made in the civil rights movement, the women's movement, feminist movement, um, and then, of course, um, marriage equality, LGBTQ rights. I think this is all a backlash to all of that, this form of redemption we're living through. Um, so I, I pulled this quote from Du Bois, um, in his magisterial Black Reconstruction in America from 1935, and he writes um, about Reconstruction, the slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, and then moved back again towards slavery. And it just feels like that today. Um, and especially, I'm thinking about that text, it reminded me that the concern of especially Southern whites was what the impact of the four million votes of free Blacks would be. And I think we are seeing that history rhyming today because there is literal white anxiety about the new potential votes of non-white people, people of color. Um, and I think, and again, we're gonna hear a lot of analysis about this, um, but I think Trump actually provides what Du Bois called the psychological wage of whiteness. He is that symbol um, for many Americans who through the, frankly, domination in Sabil's terms, in terms of lack of power of corporate monopolies and monopsonies, um, just economic power to be frank about it, um, the lack of political power, the lack of democracy. There are real objective conditions and suffering and from domination that people are feeling and it's being played out in a racially anxious way. And by the way, we're not the only ones. This is all Western democracies. Right, so I don't want to be an American exceptionalist either in this moment. Um, the, the last thing I'll, I'll say, um, Sabil's vision of what I'll call progressivism for the 21st century um, mostly focuses on the national level um, and thinking about how to regulate private power, economic power, the banks, what went wrong with our reforms, Dodd-Frank from um, 2009, 2010. I think in this moment, it's important to lift up actually the victories we did have yesterday, because we did have some, but it's not a coincidence that it's at the state and local level. And so this might be a period we think about as a period of progressive federalism, 
where we really push hard on experimentation in our laboratories of democracy in the states and cities around minimum wage, uh, paid sick, which minimum wage run every place last, yes, yesterday. Um, what some of the reforms that Sabil talks about, and I hope you say more about them. I think we can, this is still a moment to, in our blue islands, like New York City, that we can experiment radically in this moment while protecting vulnerable communities. And think about a vision that Sabil provides us in 2018 and 2020 and 2022, where we can scale up some local and state victories. But now I, I think it will be a period of much like the early progressives, right? The first progressives who were experimenting at the state and local level at a moment of Jim Crow and a moment of the Gilded Age a hundred years plus ago before it was scaled up in the New Deal. So I think we're in that moment. And I'll stop here because I've gone too long. I think we're in that moment. And, and I am actually um, thankful, Sabil, that you have this vision, this analysis and this vision for us to look forward, to keep our eyes focused because... I would not want us to get stuck in our morning in this moment. Thanks, Gary. So thank you for that progressive reflection and progressive reflection, very helpful reflection. Um, Keisha, do you want to share your thoughts? Sure, thank you. Good evening, everyone. Okay, we're going to try this one more time. I realize we're all in mourning, but that does not excuse this kind of response. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. All right, thank you so much. Um, and I want to thank you, um, thanks to Bill for inviting me to share some of my comments and thoughts. And the other thing I really want to thank to Bill for in light of Dorian's comments, this book was a lot of work. And... Um, Sabil's so willingness to open up the conversation, to reach sort of beyond the pages of his book, and to talk about where we are now, I think, uh, reflects um, the values that he approached the book with and the generosity of spirit um, through which we're sort of approaching this conversation. Um, and you all have given me uh, a couple sort of jumping off places. Um, and one of the challenges I think we have to be very cautious about um, is we, I don't believe yet know who is that coalition, who is that 47.5% of the popular vote that made up Trump's support. Um, there is no question that we have a reactionary response, that this doesn't feel like the kind of democracy we want. Um, but one of the challenges that we work with and work through um, as we look at uh, sort of the ideas of dem democratic reform is the idea of saying we don't get to pick outcomes. Right. If there's a populist movement, if there's something that speaks to people, we don't get to say that's not democracy. We get to say we lost. We get to say this is not what we want to see. This is not the country we want to have, that it reflects um, values around equity, inclusion, um, economic inequality, that there are meaningful questions that we say this is not the kind of country we want to live in. But we have to be cautious to say this isn't democracy. Right. And so what does that mean when we talk about these moments in time? What does it mean when we figure out who these folks are? And some of the exit polling has been a little bit antithetical to kind of what we thought we would have seen. Right. So we despite um, the conduct and language of the candidate at the top of the ticket, we still saw 47 percent of women voting for him who cast a ballot. 
right? We simply saw more Latinos and more African-Americans who voted for Romney voted, than voted for Romney voted for Trump. So this hasn't, this is not um, a sort of straight up, you know, this is, this is exclusionary, this is inclusionary um, now. Also, don't get me wrong. When we talk about white supremacy, the insidiousness of um, internalized racism is no joke, Right. So to suggest that um, the ability to compartmentalize and segregate who I am from who you are and we're a different kind of black person or we're a different kind of Latino. So this message speaks to me in a different kind of way because I know they're not talking about me. That kind of dialogue, internal dialogue, I think is very much a part of that conversation. But I think the reality of the situation is that this isn't something that is simply divided sharply along lines that simply says, oh, this is, um, this speaks to this kind of person, but not that kind of person. This is the right kind of democracy, not the wrong kind of democracy. So what are we, what do, so some of the questions are, what are the systems and inclusionary processes that allow us to engage most effectively for the greatest good for the greatest people? Right, going back to the point that we have a winner of the popular vote for the fifth time that has lost the electoral college. Um, and five out of 45 isn't actually a lot, but it is enough to be disquieting and it is enough to us to question and challenge how we're thinking about the systems and how we're thinking about the processes as we step into these spaces. Um, one of the things, uh, Dorian, that you, when you mentioned uh, the sort of uh, the rhythms or the rhymes with um, Reconstruction and Jim Crow, um, we have to recall that when Obama was um, elected in 08, um, in 2010, there were over 180 restrictive laws around elections enacted between 2010 and 2011, right? As compared to the entire Jim Crow period, which was about 50 to 55. Right. And so there was a strong, a harsh, an immediate response to the election of Barack Obama. And it was systemic and it was broad. And so when we look at outcomes like, say, in the state of South Carolina, where I think Clinton, I think, secured something like 35 or 37 percent of the vote at the end of the day. Um, when I think about a state which was one of the handful of states that actually had a majority black legislature following Reconstruction, yet today only mobilized 35 percent of the vote for the Democratic candidate, I'm like, there's something happening here, right? There's something structural going on here. And as we think about how we engage around these structural questions of our democracy, we also have to think about what that engagement looks like for who we are and how we fit today. Um, one of the things I keep wanting to include in my bios, but I never do, which is I'm an organizer by birth and an attorney by training. That, you know, my dad dragged me to these community meetings before I knew how to talk. I was, you know, playing with the blocks while they were figuring out how to change the community, right? And so always being in these spaces and trying to figure this out. And one of the things that we think about at the RBF and one of the things that we're really trying to figure out is how do we look at how people are organizing today and incorporate these models into our systems of governance, right? When we look at our organizing models today, they're very flat um, and we can use words like spider webs, snowflakes, um, any other 
mechanism, you probably have a better name for how we kind of, these multinodal systems that are non-hierarchical but connect people um, through systems, and I'll let you speak to it if you choose to. Um, but in order to talk about how our governance system works, they're strictly hierarchical. And we have not done a great job of trying to figure out how to incorporate how people actually engage and connect in their daily lives and moving these systems into our governance practices, not just as reference points or recommendations or communities from, from C3 deliberative democracy exercises, but meaningful parts of our governance. And I think you speak to some of these ideas in the book, and it is is actually an area where we're actually moving into some of the funding work because we realize in our 21st century democracy, if we're not really talking about changing what the governance systems look like, these external models that touch, touch but don't actually move can't get us where we need to go. And the expectation of what people expect from their democracy, how they engage in their democracy, because if people don't believe in the democracy, the outcomes are going to be very different. What does it mean to have a crisis of legitimacy in our government and governance systems? And we've been able to kind of dodge, I think, that bullet for a really long time. But I think there are some real questions we can talk about. But what does it mean today if people don't believe that government can provide the solutions and they're not actually engaged in the process in any way. So these are some of the things your comments triggered, but I'm sure I'm missing things, So, but I've gone on too long. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Go ahead, Just to jump in, so that... Uh, yeah, so just to jump in on uh, on both of those, um, I was scribbling uh, a lot of thoughts myself as you guys are both talking, and it's such a pleasure it's always such a pleasure to hear uh, both of you um, think out loud. It's one of the things I love uh, about doing these kinds of things with you both. Um, so if we think about this, what is it, uh, how do we get concrete, right, about, um, about recreating or creating a new uh, a sense of democracy and a sense of power? Um, and I think that's a sub, kind of in, in both of these last uh, rounds of comments. So uh, let me maybe say three things uh, about this. So the first thing which both of you touched on is that um, what is the thing that we're trying to change? I think we have to be clearer that the things we're trying to change aren't the immediately surface visible things, but really it's the deep structures. So Keisha, when you were talking about sort of the deep, the, the wiring of our democracy, right? How many poll sites are there? How do you add voter ID laws? Um, all of these restrictions, it's not just about showing up to vote. There's a whole infrastructure to our democracy that got rigged up, right? Um, and the same is true for our economy, right? It's not just about taxes and growth and whatever. There's a whole infrastructure to corporate governance and the role of finance and the structure of work and um, and the physical structure of our cities that concentrate poverty and uh, and and uh, cut people communities off from opportunity uh, this, these are like sort of the deep wiring uh, of our society and uh, one of the things that progressives have to do is we need to this first point I want to make is we need to sort of identify the target right that's, so that's what, when we say we want structural change to me what that means is getting into the wiring of these different systems and starting to rework them so that they produce a more equitable and inclusive society. The second point is if, if that's the goal, then how do we do that? It's really hard, right? Infrastructure is hidden. That's the nature of infrastructure. Um, and so I talk in the book a, a lot about uh, John Dewey, who is a philosopher who I love, but who is horrible to quote. He is not quotable um, <laughs> at all. 
Uh, but one of the things that he says is that the problem of the public uh, in the modern world is that it feels inchoate uh, and that uh, caught in the sweep of things we cannot change and cannot act on. And to me, that's a really powerful way of understanding the problem. Structures are so diffuse and hidden. How do we even change this stuff, right? And so to me, the answer to that is that's what government and organizing is about. It's about giving us the power as collectives that we don't have as individuals to change those structures. And so then the last point, number three, which is who, uh, how do we bake that into the fabric of our day-to-day -day lives? It can't be about something uh, pulling a lever every four years. That's not democracy. It has to be something that uh, uh, enables us, empowers us, ennobles us, right, on a day in a daily uh, way of having a say in what our structures ought to look like. And then that, so that that can be like very uh, uh, small bore in a lot of ways, right? It's it's a a, a, a zoning decision or you know, the, the location of the polling place or um, any one of a number of things that can feel very micro, but done systematically, that's democracy. So then maybe we can take, spend a few more minutes. Thank you. You get an applause every time you speak, it's great. Um, I'm just gonna stay here, yeah. So, <laughs> no, I do not get applause lines in class. This is definitely true. So, uh, oh, careful. Oh, oh, God. Um, I want to move to kind of next steps and like the way forward. I just I would like to spend a couple minutes on diagnosis, and you know both of you have sort of talked about organizing and the importance of it. I work for an organization that in, is engaged in community organizing, but I also think this is a moment in which we have to engage in some self-reflection on our own work and our own practice. And I wonder if you have thoughts about why we came up short. What, what, what are the ways in which we may need to retool? And I don't mean why Hillary Clinton came up short and didn't win 270 electoral votes, but I mean us as a movement or an intersection of various movements, um, not having the collective power to prevent a xenophobic, racist, misogynistic, and many other things demagogue um, from from winning the White House. Um, so I wanted to, to open the floor for that. What can we learn about our own practice um, from, from this result in this moment? I, I, I feel like I just, I just gave a little riff, so I don't wanna, I don't wanna take it too much. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> um, so I was, I was writing down my thoughts this morning, um, very early in the morning after staying up very, very late. Um, and not necessarily for this, but just like there's all these things going through your brain. And I found myself sort of unable to articulate the feeling that I had. And so right now I've settled on the great wrongness, right? There's just something that feels just wrong about where we are. We can point to different pieces of things, but I think, um, again, like in the book, the idea of all these pieces of intersectionality are really some of our biggest challenges. And I think that's also happening on the sort of movement side, um, that it is not clear as we move through different spaces and pieces of the movement that, or various movements, that there's a clear, um, there's a clear understanding of the intersections of the ideas and concepts that they're trying to undermine. 
right? So there, there's definitely a systemic attack and a systemic approach to looking at economic inequality. And there's a systemic approach to looking at racial injustice. And there are systemic approaches to looking at our de democratic systems. But one of the things that um, I find in looking at, you know, how do we fund this work? How do we think about this work? One of the biggest challenges that we find is these organizations are not necessarily in communication with each other in a way um, that is always, I think, I think internally, individually, you are seeing more and more recognition of the intersectionality of the, the issues that they're trying to approach and attack. So there is no question that institutionally and individually, you are seeing a massive growth and under like going from embryonic to like very mature movements. And I think very quick speed, but there's um, the same isms and challenges that gave rise to the separate movements are also challenging to bring people together in some ways. And I think that's one of the challenges that we're having. How do you get this movement work to truly connect meaningfully with each other um, and being able to take the recognition about the intersectionality that we're seeing each, each space occupying, um, I think, in a more effective way. And I think that is one of the things that we have to that we have to speak to. And that is separate and apart from the idea of improving our democracy. <laughs> and you wanna talk about that's where we really aren't seeing connections, where you start to see the sort of intellectual approach or the good government approaches or the organizations that say, look, we're working very hard to improve these systems and they're unable to relate their goals to improving economic performance, to to uh, to reducing economic inequality, to looking specifically at racial justice and how these things tie together, and really want to root their value just in the idea of engagement without tying it to benefit of those who are engaging. Like those th those kinds of systemic questions, I think we really see some meaningful chasms. I think on the other side, I think the movement groups are growing and getting to that place, whether or not um, that was achieved in this particular election cycle, I don't know. Um, but I think that um, we do have some really big chasms, not schisms, um, that, would, that would suggest we were together and broke apart. I'm not even sure it's gotten to that point yet. Um, but certainly I think there are some definite challenges, particularly around movement groups and structural reform. This good governance point, I think, is a really important one, and I'm glad you raised that. I, I, um, there is a strand of sort of uh, liberal policymaking or wonkery, right, that I think uh, uh, a lot of us maybe are uh, a little too uh, easy to uh, it collapse into a little too easily. So um, in the book, I call it managerialism, but I think it's what, what you're calling right, good governance. Yeah. solutions to how we fix our democracy. Totally. No relationship with how people live. Totally, right. And that's true on the democracy side. And it's true on really any substantive policy side. So um, if you think about it, like, uh, you know, one of the big fault lines, say, before Obama or, or, or before the um, the racial like uh, reaction, the white lash to Obama really became clear um, we tended before then. We tended to think of our politics framed around a clash between, you know, government types and free market types, right? And and in that framing, one of the big moves that liberals made, especially after uh, the the 80s, was to uh, def defuse the free market sort of uh, anti-government attacks by sort of uh, doubling down on this technocratic good governance idea that the way we're going to do policy is trust smart people who. Uh, 
will operate on the basis of neutral scientific expertise, and then everybody agrees, right? We all agree that growth is good. And we all agree that, you know, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen should be deciding uh, monetary policy and not, you know, random people, uh, you know, in a focus group, right? Um, and that's, this idea of expertise as a safe harbor is like really attractive, uh, but it, but I feel like this is one of the things that I think we do wrong as progressives, right? We're, we're too enamored of this idea and it pulls us away from exactly the kind of uh, deep democratic community-based uh, uh, decisions and goals and aspirations that I think you were, you were just talking about. Uh, so there's a lot there. I, I would say in terms of diagnosis to your question, um, <laughs> we got everything wrong, right? There's no question <laughs> about that. And there's going to be lots of noise, just an incredible amount of noise of opinions on this. And so I think it's helpful for all of us to, in this, the next few days and weeks, to have some humility and because um, everyone's going to have their pet theory, right? Of, oh, this, is, this explains what happened. And I think in a dimension that's important for us to all remember is something Sibyl said. And, and so I'd encourage us all to think about what are the surface level explanations versus the deep structural ones? Because I think there are lots we could fill up in both those boxes. Um, so with humility, I'll offer some <laughs> um, on the surface side, right? Um, and I'm thinking about this both as someone who sometimes plays a pundit on TV, um, who every, we all got it wrong, clearly there, but also as a, you know, card-carrying political scientist. And scholars of American politics are not going to have to throw out an entire generation of scholarship because we all got it wrong there too, right? Um, so every theory that we might have had, oh, the ground game and organization matters more. Bullshit. Clearly that's not true. Oh, negative campaigns depress turnout. Uh-uh. <laughs> That's wrong now after 30 years of that. Oh, objective economic conditions predict who's going to win the White House. So, you know, the economy looked good on paper or as experts talk about it. But I think we now know economic, objective economic conditions don't really predict. They didn't predict this one. Oh, people are rational voters. No, people are emotional voters. <laughs> Can we just be done with the rational voter theorem, right, for once? People are emotional voters, and people don't interpret objective conditions, or they do in a different way, right? So even if the economic indicators look good in terms of unemployment rate or economic growth, how people perceive their own economic situation is very different than any objective condition over here. So if I'm interpreting my station as in decline or my children are going to be worse off, then I'm going to be emotionally angry about that and will vote accordingly. So anyway, those are just some examples. Another one, oh, the, the Obama coalition has swept in a realignment of our politics with, you know, this new combination of demographics of people of color and women and millennials. Hey, majority of white millennials voted for Trump. Majority of white millennials voted for Romney last time too, so I'm not putting my money on millennials saving us. <laughs> uh, so anyway, all of this, right, these are all the surface level things we're going to be hearing over the next few weeks. And I think it, it's helped what Sibyl actually offers us is a way to think about the deeper structures. How are people feeling not free? How are people feeling systems of power who are, dom are dominating them? How are they interpreting that? 
And then how do those deeper structures influence people's surface level behavior up here? I think that's, that's part, that should be part of our diagnosis in addition to the surface level noise we're gonna be hearing. Um. <laughs> that's depressing, don't clap for that. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, uh, so I know we wanna open it up soon. But oh, can I have one more thing? The, the other thing we do need to theorize and push back against, this is important, is the normalization of explicit racism and misogyny. Thank you. I, I wrote that down, I forgot to say that. Yeah, that's that is actually my, that's probably what scares me the most in this moment, is the normalization of what we've seen in the last 18 months. Yeah, I think that's, that's super important. Uh, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll add a, a couple of other, maybe less, uh, more mundane uh, things sort of on the list of uh, things to focus on. Um, so what are some of those deep structures, right? Uh, just to make it real concrete, um, they may not seem like on the surface they connect directly to uh, those surface level uh, points as Dorian was talking about, but I, I think they are, they are connected. So uh, first is uh, finance and the financialization of the economy. We, we thought we solved the problem in 08. One of the things I talk about in the book is we totally didn't. And, um, uh, and I'm kind of uh, terrified that, you know, that part of the book seemed to be borne out. Um, it's a big part of why the economy feels rigged, because it is. Uh, a second related one is monopoly power. Uh, we, the antitruster, the antitrust movement was a big part of the progressive movement 100 years ago. Uh, and lo and behold, here we are uh, 30 odd years after the Reagan revolution and monopolies are back in a big way. And that's also part of what's rigging the economy. Uh, third thing is the changing nature of work. Uh, uh, both Keisha and Dorian are, um, uh, you know, much more about this than I do, but uh, uh, the idea of work as uh, opportunity, as uh, upward mobility, as dignity is just not true in today's economy for most people. Uh, and that has to do with a wiring structuring issue. Um, and then the, the last thing I'll mention, uh, just because it's near and dear to my heart as a uh, a cities guy, right? We were talking about federalism is, is the wiring of our cities. Um, our cities are wired to reproduce and exacerbate inequality. Um, and, you know, that's a problem. They've been this way really actually since the New Deal. This is not a conservative thing. Uh, this is one of the big failures of 20th century progressivism is the sort of the, the uh, racial segregation baked into our cities, which we still have to undo. Uh, so that's some really concrete. Uh, the last thing I just want to add is uh, to go back abstract because uh, I am a card-carrying political theorist. So um, I get to do this sort of thing. Uh, Dorian had a, a Du Bois quote. Um, I have uh, two quotes which I want to leave you with before we open up. Um, but these are really the bookends of the, uh, 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 of the book. They, it's, the, it's the first thing in the book and the last thing in the book. The so first thing in the book is um, this quote from Walt Whitman. Uh, from his uh, piece, Democratic Vistas. And he says, I think it's apt for, for our discussion today. Uh, we have frequently printed the word democracy, yet it is a word the real gist of which still sleeps quite unawakened, notwithstanding the resonance and the many angry tempests out of which its syllables have come from pen or tongue. It is a great word whose history remains unwritten because that history is yet to be enacted. Then about 30 odd years later, uh, Louis Brandeis speaking to the Filings Cooperative in Boston. And he had this to say, a hundred years ago, the civilized world did not believe that it was possible that the people could rule themselves. They did not believe that it was possible to have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. America in the last century proved democracy is a success. The civilized world today believes that in the industrial world, self-government is impossible. 
that we must adhere to the system we have known as a monarchical system, the system of master and servant, or as more politely called, employer and employee. Mm -hmm. It rests with this century and perhaps with America to prove that as we have in the political world shown what self-government can do, we are to pursue the same lines in the industrial world. So Brandeis's charge, I think in a lot of ways, produced or eventually yielded the New Deal. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're hearing today, you know, in our discussion and what we are faced with in a, in a Trump uh, era is that our charge is to uh, realize this idea of democracy as economic, political, and social inclusion, uh, which we have never had in this country. Um, it's a tall order, but we have no choice but to make that our project. So I'll stop there. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org. <laughs>